You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today, we've got Suresh Shankar, who is the founder and CEO at Crayon Data, a company that uses AI-led algorithms to handle big data sets to understand customer taste. So I first met Suresh when we we're both speaking at SaaS Hong Kong back when things were a little more normal. Those were good times. I hadn't been back to Hong Kong since... I guess before that, I hadn't been back since I was seven years old or six years old, so it's always good. Suresh and I hit it off, and Suresh, first and foremost, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Eric. Great to be talking, even though it's virtual, and hopefully this year we will meet again in physical space. For sure we will, for sure we will. All right, so Suresh, let's talk a little more. I mean, I gave a brief description on Crayon Data, but let's learn a little more about you and learn a little more about how the company works. Thanks, Eric. So Crayon's, uh, as you said, an AI big data leader. leader. We're based in Singapore. Our bold vision was to simplify the world's choices. And let me put that in simpler terms for people, right? As a consumer, I think what we want to do is we want to create digital irrelevance. Essentially help any company in the world create what you call the gold standard of personalized experience. It's something like what Netflix and Spotify do for their consumers. Digital giants can do that easily. Traditional enterprises can't. So we want to help companies create those kind of personalized experiences literally in days using the platform. So that's really the core of what Crayon Data is trying to do. And we believe that digital irrelevance is the mosquito in our digital lives. It's always hovering around and buzzing. You know, you're seeing something, there's so much spam coming at you in terms of ads, in terms of choices, in terms of things that are being thrown at you, which you don't want. And eventually you want to buy something and you end up spending 45 minutes surfing the web and looking at lots of irrelevant stuff. That's the problem that we want to solve. We want to help companies kind of say, hey, listen, can I simplify consumers' lives by making everything relevant to them? I love that. So what would be a practical example of a customer using Crayon Data? And who are your customers? So we work largely with traditional large enterprises. So consumer banks, airlines, pre-COVID, hotels, and, and you know people in the travel business, retailers, etc. But consumer banks tend to be the largest user today in our main customer base. And I'm going to give you an, an, a typical example of what happens today with a consumer bank. I presume sitting in California that you might be, no disrespect to any name that's being used in the, in the podcast today, but you might be a Wells Fargo customer. And I'm sure that they're sending you lots of different offers, lots of stuff over the years that they've known you. And I'm also pretty certain that you don't open any of those communications and you don't use any of them because they're completely irrelevant. My favorite example is I've been having four credit cards at one bank in Singapore for 20 years. They still send me offers to eat at steak restaurants. And after about tens of thousands of transactions, I would have thought maybe they'd have figured out I'm vegetarian by now, but they <laughs> haven't, right? And that's the problem. How do you actually help these kind of companies that have data? They have huge amounts of customers and data, but they're not able to operate the way. I mean, imagine that data with a Netflix or a Spotify, they would just be killing you with personalization. Got it. That makes all the sense in the world. So you help people weaponize their data, for lack of a better word. That's a lovely way to put it. I'm going to steal that phrase from you. I love that. There you go. Cool. So I'll be taking a commission on that. I'll take 1%. But anyway, so, okay. How do you guys make money? And then is it only reserved for, how big does the company, you said larger enterprises. So you got that part. How do you guys charge in general? How do you make money? So I think it's a fairly simple thing. We've obviously been through a journey to get here. We started off saying we want to democratize this whole thing. We try to work with mid-sized companies, lots of that. We've done a pivot, and I'll come to that later. 
But to answer your main question, how do you make money? It's fairly simple, right? We have a two-sided platform. So what we tell a bank is you have customers, you need to connect to the digital world of merchants, of people who have products to sell. Our platform will sit in between, profile your customer, help engage them in a personal way and help them transact with all these other people in the marketplace. And all of this is coming out of one single full stack solution. And the way we make money is three things. One is long-term annual subscriptions for the platform. Typically, this is based on the number of customers or the portfolio value that you have. The second one is a share of incremental income. For example, today, uh, merchants are prepared to pay for you know, getting traffic from, let's say, bank customers. So we'd say we will take a share of the incremental income that we will generate. And the third one, and this is very important, I think, in Prayon's journey and a learning that I've personally gone through, is professional services, integrations and customizations. Normally a bad word in the SaaS world, but I think we have our reasons and our learnings that we've gone through in getting there. Got it. Okay. And so how's the company, I mean, whatever numbers you're comfortable sharing, how's the company doing growth rates, employee size, whatever you're open to talking about? We just crossed 10 million of ARR in 2020. And that was a seminal moment for us because we've kind of hovered and like, you know, you know how companies always get to one place and then they struggle to make the next one. So we just made that next jump. And we did that in a year when COVID was all around us. So we put proud of that. We are, EBITDA numbers are such that we're down to very, very low monthly burn numbers. So now that becomes a choice in terms of how much we want to grow and expand. We have about 125 people so far. So, and that's a kind of number that in the COVID year, we face a lot of pressures when the year started in terms of reducing headcount and cut costs. And we took a bold stand saying we won't let people go. We will get people to take collective pain, but we want to save every job. So we've stayed about that 125 number. So 2020 was a year in which we not just survived. I mean, we, we didn't know whether we'd survive, Eric, but I think we thrived in that year. That's so good. that's really the size of the company today. We have 10 clients, but for us, the leading metric on Nordstar, Eric, is not the number of clients that we have. It is the number of users that are on the platform. So, you know, we're a B2B2C place. So we are actually getting people to onboard their users onto our platform, right? So for me, it is the number of users who are actually I'm able to personalize for. And that metric is about 25 million users today, which are on our platform. Got it. I'm assuming because you've got a career in sales, most of the customers you've acquired, it's all sales driven, not a lot of marketing right now. Is that correct? 2020 was the year again that we went more digital in the marketing. I think you're absolutely right. Earlier, we built out you know, the brand, we had good videos and all that, but we are not a very marketing driven company. I think 2020 has been the year that's changed. We asked ourselves a simple question, right? How do you sell when you're not in the room if you're in an enterprise? So now it all becomes about storytelling, which is digital storytelling, which is when you're not in the room, what happens when you leave? So I think it's been the year in which marketing's become a critical part of the whole sales function. And moving away from a pure direct sales model into a partner-led model into a digital marketing-led model. Got it. And so what are you guys doing around the digital side of things right now in terms of acquisition? What we decided to do is we said, what we just took the sales cycle that we had. And, you know, typically you'd go to a customer and you'd say, okay, I profiled, I get a lead. I met them either through a personal contact or through something on LinkedIn or let's say at an event. And you'd go and talk to the customer. You'd kind of profile the customer from your own side. You'd qualify them. You'd go and have a few conversations, find out the relevant target audience. That's the typical enterprise sales cycle, right? And it takes time. And then you go through three or four stages. What we had to do is we said, how do I duplicate this digitally? And so what happened now is that we have actually created, I think, a couple of wonderful digital assets. One is something that we said, hey, listen, I know I want to sell to 100 banks in the world. So we created something called the relevance quotient. 
So we've gone and profiled these banks. We've looked at everything they're doing digitally. And we've kind of said, here are 10 things that you need to do if you are a bank in terms of personalizing. And here is where you stand in your country vis-a-vis -vis banks of a similar size and created something called the relevance quotient. And like I said, so far we profiled 100 banks in 17 countries. These are our target markets. And we put that list out and that's a great conversation starter for us because when you send it out, people saying, hey, why am I so low compared to somebody else? Why do you think I'm doing well out here? I don't agree with this. And it becomes a great conversation starter for the sales guy. The second thing is the more interesting thing, which is we said, how do I digitize the journey? And that's interesting because we actually used a, it's a new company, which essentially allows you to create a completely personalized portal for literally every client that we work with. So when we go to that thing, we don't use any more of this PowerPoint where we know it's videos. Everything is on that portal. You can have a conversation with that customer. So what we now are doing is that when we leave the room, we give the access to the portal to the sign-in to any individual. Let's say we're talking to the CDO. And the CDO now has to say, I've got to go and talk to the CMO. I've got to go and talk to the analytics person. I've got to talk to somebody else. He now has the link and he can share it out inside of what's going on. So we're trying to create this, like I said, address this problem of how do I sell to an enterprise when I'm not in the room by making the shifting the whole thing into a digital portal. So it's an interesting set of learnings for us, Eric, in terms of doing that. And conventionally, I think in the leads and all that, I think that continues to be a challenge, right? You know, where are you appearing? How do you do digital events now? We've learned, for example, that accelerators and working with large company accelerators is very good for our business. Those are the two or three things that we've tried to digitize in 2020. Got it. And now you're also doing podcasts too. That is interesting because <laughs> and sometimes, as you can see from the gray hair, I'm an old fogey, right? But I was talking to some of my younger people and I said, I want to really write and there's a lot of stuff that I know and let me write blogs. And they said, you know, man, you're so old fashioned. I'm going to get to the program. I said, so what? And they said, you got to get on to doing podcasts. And that is very interesting because I said, okay, I know a couple of these guys that I've been following for a while. And Neil and you are obviously on that list. There's a few others. And I said, let me just go look at them. And I said, wow, that's a completely new world that I've not been exposed to. We've talked a little bit about it. So you guys have been an inspiration for me. And so we said, let's actually use this medium. And for me, I'm a digital novice in the podcast world. I mean, one day I hope to be somewhere near where you are. That'll be good. Yeah, you know, I appreciate that. What I would say is Neil and I, we still both blog. It's still a very important medium that scales well. And I think, look, if you like writing, you write. It's not one or the other. I think maybe your team is too old-fashioned in some senses. Who knows? Maybe they're too new-fashioned. I'm going to take that as a very good point because I still start, Eric, with this. I write. I have to jot down my thoughts and get my thinking right. And so, I, you know, it's my best form of expression even inside the company. Yeah, so it's huge. So I'm going to take that away. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I think what might be helpful too, because I think sometimes maybe we take for granted the experience that we have and your career in sales. How long have you had a career in sales for? You don't need to give an so, exact number, just a range. <laughs> I think I'm still quite contemporary for when I look at some of the other people for around sure. me. So I've spent 35 years, Eric, doing one thing, which is enabling companies to understand their customers better and how to serve them, create experiences, products, price better. But if you Interestingly, look at that 35-year journey. It's been a steady, what I call a backward progression. I've gone further and further away from the customer. I started off in frontline sales. You know, I used to sell sewing thread in my start of my career. Go out there, go and sit with tailors, people who use sewing thread, right? That's what it was. I'm more into product management. Now you're trying to say, I want to abstract something and take some research and do it. 
From there, I moved into advertising, saying, I'm going to take what the marketing guy is telling me and I'm going to convert it into a message to move consumers. Inside advertising, I moved to the media business, which is, I said, okay, now it's really about finding the customer at the right time and giving that message to them. I moved to international roles from national roles in India to international roles in Asia Pacific. And then as I worked in media and I worked and I saw the first internet banking thing that I launched in Asia Pacific for a bank out here and first personalization and data warehousing projects in this part of the world, I had an epiphany. I said, if you really want to understand customers, it is going to be a data and tech driven world. It's not going to be the right brain world where I started, but the left brain world of data and tech. And this is about 20 years ago, Eric. So it is about 2000. So rather stupidly quit my nicely high paying bank job and became an entrepreneur in 2000. And that is to set up an analytics firm. And Eric, again, while you are young, you'd appreciate in 2000, analytics wasn't even a thing. Right? And it was rather brave of me to go out there and do that. But I think we evangelized, bootstrapped that firm. But it was built on the basic belief that the voice of the customer is already available to you. It is deep in your data. You're not looking at your data. right? And that's what started my entrepreneurial journey way back in 2000. And that is a company called Red Pill. You know, the Matrix, I'm sure you've seen it. Take the Red Pill. Yep. So that story, we just bootstrapped, we evangelized, we grew the firm. That story ended well. IBM acquired us. It was then the largest tech player in the world. So that is nice. A moment that is worth it. That, well, so uh, but then, this is good to know, right? So you founded a services firm in Asia. It was the, the first analytics firm in Asia. What range was the acquisition for? Because I'm sure there's a lot of Asian people listening to this. It is very interesting, Eric, if I were to go back and just talk about the Red Pill thing in a couple of minutes, right? I mean, we bootstrapped the firm. We kind of started it in Singapore. We grew from up here. We were never very large. We, at the maximum, we were 60 people. But one of the differences, I think, with what we used to do is that we used to go to clients and say, I'm not interested in selling you a piece of tech or in giving you people to do the work. I'm interested in only one thing. I want to deliver value, dollar value of your data. So that is, you know, you talked about weaponizing data, but that's what we used to try and say clients in that, right? And when IBM acquired us, they looked around the world for 30 firms. They get down to 15. There's an 11 and a half month courtship. And, you know, they're IBM. They take their time. So we ended up with them saying, we really want to get you guys, though you're based in Asia, we really want to get you guys because they looked at the revenue per employee that we had. And we had very management consulting firm like revenues per employee because our pricing was picked to the value we delivered, not the cost of the people that we had. So they loved that model, right? And they said, okay, this is something that we can really do. And just to share a more personal thing, Eric, you know, the day before we signed the deal, the head of IBM, not the, not the overall head, but the head of this division and I were talking and I said, are you sure you guys want to go ahead? We're 60 people, you're 400,000. Are you sure you guys can't do this? And he said, Suresh, just sign. Okay. <laughs> And it took us one week of being inside IBM to understand why. Here's a company that used to selling databases, BI solutions, campaign management, analytics tools, or selling services to integrate all that. And what we would go in there and walk into the client and say, if you have a million customers and they're spending so much money, or if they have, you know, you have so much penetration, I'm going to improve that by X. And that ability to go and talk about the dollar value of data was something that the firm lacked at that point of time. Listen, you know, it's nice to always sell a firm to a, one of the biggest names in tech in the world. It's one of the few Asian firms they acquired. I personally believe that, I hope in some small way, a lot of people out here in Singapore and India felt, hey, you know, if this guy can do it, we can do it too. Got it. That's awesome. And that's inspiring. So talking about, because currently you have 10 customers right now, right? So a million bucks ARR per customer, right? 
I guess, can you walk people through, I mean, people that want to sell to the enterprise, you know, what are the keys to locking in a $1 million enterprise deal? What's the sales cycle look like? Because I often don't get to talk about that too much on this podcast with people. That's a absolutely great question, Eric. And it's part of the existential struggle that we went through with Crayon. Like with all companies that said, we want to be SaaS, we said, no, no, we want to have 100 clients, we want to have 200 clients, we should go out there, we should sell for five to $10,000. So we're an eight-year-old firm, right? And you know, it sounds like we've not gone that, but we spent two, three years actually building the platform and working with lead clients to make sure that this stuff worked. And then we went into this model saying, we want to sell to the large enterprise market. Everybody should be able to download and install and use it. It's five to $10,000 a month. And you know, it's $100,000 or $200,000 a year, which is not a bad number in SaaS ARR, if you will. And then we realized it doesn't work. The reason is that when you're talking about doing something like personalization, you're touching literally every system in a company and you're either taking data or you're sending some signal back into it. And not every mid-sized enterprise, even in the banking thing, was open to that kind of change because it was the change management process inside the enterprise of getting people to do things differently that was hard. Now, obviously, we didn't want to embrace the whole services model as well. So we said, how do we do this? And at the same time, Eric, what we discovered was that large enterprises, which were innovative leaders, and before COVID, we did a fantastic project for Emirates Airlines, right? So where we were, they wanted to create a completely a vision where they said, if you think of travel, you should think of Emirates. They have 100 million customer records. They have 60 million passengers. And they said, listen, we love your capability, but you really have to work with us to integrate this deep across every system. We love the platform, but unless you actually come in and work with us, we don't want to work with you, right? And that's a mental switch, right? Because if you're a SaaS entrepreneur, you want to say, no, 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 I don't want to do this. But that's really huge bucks. And you're embedding yourself. I mean, it's like putting a needle inside something, right? It's hard for people to take the needle out. So what I'd actually tell people is the same thing, right? I think when you go into the large enterprise, I think we have to understand the fact that large enterprises are complex. They have multiple buyers. They have long sales cycles. You've got to embrace that. If you don't like that and you're getting impatient with it, it's like wanting to play a basketball game with one quarter. No, this is a four-quarter game. You're going to win it in the last minute. You've got to have the patience to go through that four-quarter game, right? And the second thing is, I would say to people who are entrepreneurs who are doing this, don't be afraid of services. As long as you're clear that you're building it around the platform that you are selling. Because every services project you do, if you kind of do this word saying, I want to write code that is sitting in my platform and adds it, you learn so much from every enterprise, right? So I think the biggest tech players, I mean, look at it, Adobe, Workday, all these guys, they're all enterprise companies that didn't start off by saying, yeah, there's a SaaS thing, download and install. So to me, that ability to work with multiple stakeholders in a long sales cycle and not being afraid of services were the two biggest learnings for me in this whole thing, right? But here's the benefits of doing that, Eric. Once you integrate deep and once you complete the sales cycle, one of the things that we talk about in SaaS is LTV to CAC. Your LTV to CAC ratio is phenomenal. I can hire a rep, give him a quarter million dollars a year. And if he closes one deal worth a million dollars, I'm going to make so much money off that deal, right? The second thing that I kind of would like to tell people is most often a large enterprise is, one of my learnings, Eric, is that, you know, when I go in and talk to, I mean, and I'm sure you've seen this, right? You go and talk to a large enterprise. Nobody's going to say, I don't want to be customer centric. I don't want to personalize. I mean, no CEO will say that. No CXO would say that. But while the destination is that they all want to be like Netflix or Spotify. They always start at different points and they always want to take different routes. That's the nature of an enterprise, right? In SaaS, we tend to say, you follow my model. 
And one of the things you need to do from an engineering perspective at our learning is you've got to make your platform flexible enough so that an enterprise can start at a different point and follow a different route while you keep your vision constant and your platform constant to do that. So to me, those are the three big learnings, the sales cycle, the services, and how you engineer the platform. Enterprise sales is complex. It totally is complex, which I mean, that's why I wanted to kind of unpack it for people. So just to clarify, in terms of timeline, for the first two to three years, you were building out products. So you really didn't get much going, right? How long did it take you to figure out product market fit, right? Because obviously you had to kind of play around with a couple of pricing models as well. You know, which year was it where you're just like, I think we got it? So 2018 was the year in which I'd say we got it. And that is because in 2017, as we went and talked to large people and we said, we want to pivot to the large enterprise model. And so I would say it took us a fair bit of time of various. So I won't say the current product market fit was discovered in the last three years. And I think that's done well for us. How, how so many, that's the period when you've gone from two or three million to 10 million, if you will. Right. But how, it took us a long time because we made lots of mistakes in the earlier five years. How many years was that? When did you start the company again? 2013 is when we started operations. So really five years to figure it out. I think my point here is that it takes a lot longer than you think to figure things out, right? Because I think in general, what's SaaS, sometimes it's, you know, two to three years. It could be a little longer to get the product market fit. I mean, what are your thoughts on that in general? I have two conflicting thoughts in my head when I read all this stuff about people saying in two, three years, they've done this. I'm like, why can't I do it? Why can't I be faster? You know, so you feel a sense of, am I too slow? Am I doing this? And I have the second thing when I look at, when I talk to entrepreneurs about the numbers that we have, and I'm not just talking about the top line numbers of the growth. I'm talking about the EBITDA numbers, the gross margins, the way we do it. They don't get there. They're still subsidizing a lot of their acquisition and they don't have the net revenue re retention rates that we have. We have a hundred percent net revenue retention rate, right? I'm schizophrenic, Eric, to be perfectly candid. and Most entrepreneurs are. <laughs> But I think the important point out here is really to go back to that question is this, right? Freshworks has been around 10 years. They started before Crayon. Zoho, and I'm talking a couple of India-based India companies, Zoho has been around 18 and they are like, you know, whatever it is. People think Salesforce just happened. It's been around 20 years. Lots of these companies that are the big giants that we talk about, Netflix pivoted in 2011, 12, and then, you know, they go on to that. So I genuinely think it takes eight to 10 years to build a company of some level of importance and scale. And then I think it becomes your destiny. I mean, how much are you able to grow it? This is a basketball season, 80 game season to use something the American audiences might be familiar with. Where we come from in Asia and cricket, I said, there's a test match, right? It's not a one hour game. It's a test match. It's played over five days. Yeah. Makes total sense. So just to confirm again, you said eight to 12 years to build something significant. Right. Look at any company that you can name, which has become really big. And there are very few of them that have kind of become these overnight sensations and like, you know, done something in two years, I, especially I, I, in B2B. Yep. No, totally. So Neil and I often talk about, hey, to get a business going to start to see traction might be three years on average, but eight to 12 years to build something significant. I just want something that people can latch on to. What do you mean by significant? What does significant look like to you? So I think typically significance for most entrepreneurs and for most people and VCs and all that is measured by the valuation, right? For me, yes, that's obviously important because I mean, that's one reason why we're all in this game. But I once heard somebody say one thing brilliant. He said, you focus on value creation and valuation will follow. Yeah. So for me, significance is value creation. And one of the best examples I've heard about value creation or how you can actually create a value creation model is Sean Ellis, where he talks about the North Star and the growth equation, right? So to me, significance is what is, are you meeting your North Star? Do you have a growth equation to meet that North Star? For us, 
our immediate tactical North Star in the next 12 months or so is to get to 100 million users on the platform. And if we can do that, we then saying, how do I get to a billion users on the platform? If I have a billion users on this platform, they're not, none of them are my users. They're all large company users. Right? But imagine, it doesn't take long, Eric. I mean, if I work with 25 banks around the world, I can probably get that many, right? But that's a significance for me in terms of value creation because I'm touching the lives of a billion users to something else. The third thing is, I think, significance in terms of your own vision and mission, right? And I think, are you going to get out? Because we all start out with certain goals in our head. For me personally, again, to be perfectly candid, I mean, I said, everybody, I don't know whether it's me or the market, but everybody said, hey, you sold a company to IBM. And how do you do better than that? I mean, so I mean, this is a big thing for me. I mean, I have to work this out. I haven't quite worked it out yet myself. So significance could be, what's that next big thing? And by the way, the big thing doesn't necessarily need to be something bigger than IBM, right? It could be in a different, what is your vision out here? So I would say the number metric is one, your North Star value creation goal is another, and your own personal significance in terms of vision and mission is a third. Got it. I love that. So working towards wrapping up here, we're going to switch gears a little bit. What is one business tool that you've added in the last year that you love? So first of all, like I told you, my favorite tool is this notebook, right? So I mean, the biggest tool I still use across all the platforms is the notepad, right? I have to obsessively open a notepad in a meeting, capture the notes, put it back in and so on. And here's a funny thing I'm going to say because it sounds so old fashioned, but the tool I've truly enjoyed in 2020 because it has saved me a huge amount of time and effort is Microsoft Teams. Old company, but I think what they've done is brilliant because they've completely integrated everything to a place where I don't need to go into earlier. I had Zoom, I had Slack, I had Gmail, I had X, I had Y. Every tool was different. And yes, you can sign in with all these things, right? But this has saved me so much time this year, honestly. Sounds like a plug for a really old pre-internet economy company, but I think they've actually made some significant progress in terms of how easy they made it to communicate. Yeah, all in one. It makes total sense. It's just, it's simple. How about your favorite business book? As you can see behind my thing, I'm a big reader and, and I promise you that's not a Zoom bookshelf. <laughs> I've read most of that stuff. <laughs> I think there are a couple of books that are reading on this one and I think quite clearly as an entrepreneur, my go-to book when I'm in a moment of doubt, the business book is Horowitz's Hard Thing About Hard Things. There is an equivalent book about adventure called Endurance about Shackleton's journey. Though it's, he was also an entrepreneur when he went to the South Pole and I would urge everybody to read that book because sometimes, you know, rather than talking about entrepreneurship, that is a true story of what it takes to build a startup. So to me, that's the entrepreneur business book that I go in and read and they're my go-to books and I'm in a moment of doubt. I pull out the struggle and I read it and I say, that's why we exist. There's a whole bunch of other stuff, Eric. I mean, one of the things that's been concerning me over the last year is this whole dominance of digital giants and how much they're taking over. And I think they're completely stifling innovation in the small entrepreneur setup, if you will, right? You know, people who are trying to get there. So one of the interesting books that I, it was written in 2018, but I read it this year is this book called The Curse of Bigness, a guy called Tim Wu. And he talks about antitrust and why it existed and what we need to do to encourage businesses, entrepreneurs, you know, medium-sized startups to kind of grow. So I would say these are some of the books that have been top of my mind this year. Awesome. Suresh, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? LinkedIn is good. Suresh, we Shankar. It should be fairly easy. I am reasonably, you know, I have my own podcast. I hope to, like I said, get on to that. It's called Slaves to the Algo. And I think that has all my contact details. Slaves to the Algo. 
and it's all about AI and demystifying it. And I think the LinkedIn profile has all my contact details, my mobile, my emails, everything's on my LinkedIn. Great. Suresh, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much, Eric. We really hope to be following in your young footsteps. <laughs> Appreciate that. Take care. Take care. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.